with me to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. We are continuing our study uh, through the seven letters to the seven churches, as we find them in uh, chapters 2 and 3 today, looking at Christ's message to the church in Pergamum. Chapter 2, we'll be reading today verses 12 through 17. You can find that on page 1029, if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Before we come to read God's Word together, please join me again in prayer as we seek His blessing upon it. O gracious Lord our God, You have given Your Word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and so we pray that You would divide us and lay us bare. We pray that You would do the work of uniting us back together by Your Word and by Your Spirit. We pray that You would expose the sins that hide in our hearts, Show them to us, and that we may in turn uh, flee from them and flee to Christ. Help us to see your goodness and your mercy. Help us to see Christ, our Savior, the one who has conquered and calls us after himself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Revelation chapter 2, reading verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, as you may be aware, I never served our country in the military, although there are a lot here among us who have. Uh, and if you are one of those here who did serve in the military or maybe who are serving now, uh, you have something in common with everyone else in this room and everyone else in our country who has served, something that transcends all the branches uh, of our armed forces. So it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, whether you served as enlisted or as an officer, it doesn't matter even if you root for army or navy. There is something that binds you together, and it is the oath that you took when you began your service for our country. It's that moment you raised your right hand and swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's an important oath. There's a promise to be willing to lay down your life uh, to defend and to secure our country against all kinds of threats, but it is also a recognition that those threats can come from all kinds of places. And so you promised to secure, support, and defend 
against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Of course, as Christians, our ultimate hope and our trust in the world is not in military might. Our trust is not in the arm of flesh, but rather in the name of the Lord. Yet even still, we civilians ought to rejoice when we realize that there are men and women who are willing to defend us and to lay their lives on the line, willing to defend us from the threats in the world, and even, if need be, to defend us from ourselves. Now, to the church in Pergamum, Christ presents himself in a way that may not sit well with many of the modern idols that we have, our contemporary ideas of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He presents himself as one who is willing to take up arms, and indeed who comes to defend his people. He came and and proclaimed himself to Ephesus, uh, who was there, and uh, and said that he was present. He said that he walked among the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna, who was being persecuted, Jesus said he was sovereign, the first and the last. And here we have Pergamum waffling back and forth between two opinions, and the Lord says, I am the defender. I'm the one who comes with a sharp, two-edged sword one who is willing to stand the gap between my beloved church and everything that threatens her and her faithful witness. Lots of different scholars have lots of different ideas about what it means to speak of this sword, and even the sword of the word as having two edges. Sometimes people will tell you, uh, scholars will tell you, well, this double-edged sword, it means it's speaking of maybe the Old and the New Testaments, or, or perhaps better, the law and the gospel. That's okay. Uh, Maybe it's speaking of the way that God's word comes and wounds and also heals, in the sense that the Lord comes with sword and scalpel. I suppose any of those ideas are as fine as the other, but perhaps here in this letter to Pergamum, when the Lord says, I'm the one who comes with a sharp two-edged sword that cuts in both directions, perhaps we are meant to see the way that the Lord says, I will defend my church from all her enemies, foreign and domestic. There are some things, some threats that come to the church from outside, and there are some that come from within. But either way, the Lord comes to his people with sword drawn. And believers ought to rejoice when we realize that we have such a defender. That is the goal of our studies today, for you to see the Lord who defends his church, for you to see the Lord who defends the faithfulness of his people from all her enemies, whether they come from without or whether they come from within. Now, uh, the passage proceeds as many of the other letters that we've seen and the ones that we will see. It begins with a word of comfort from Christ. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And Jesus is painting this picture, this vivid description of his own people, his church, Uh, surrounded by demonic influence, living in the very shadow of evil, living like secret agents in enemy territory. I suppose if we were believers there in the first century in Pergamum, that's exactly how we would feel. We would feel as though we were in enemy territory. Pergamum was this impressively massive and important city in the ancient world. It was a citadel, really. It sat upon a a thousand-foot mountain of granite. It was surrounded by, uh, by planes on all sides, and it sat there right in the middle of everything. It was the proverbial high place, and so it had significance for pagan worship. It had 
uh, it had military advantage. And so from ancient times, Pergamum had been an important city, even well before John wrote these words. And so there was a history uh, of worship there that went back into the old gods. And there on, on the top of the mountain was this massive uh, altar to Zeus, this golden altar that was about 120 feet square. This enormous altar right at the top of the city, and it overlooked everything else that happened in the city. If you went down the mountain a little further, you would come to a temple to uh, the old Greek god of healing, Asclepius. You would recognize Asclepius' symbol even today in any hospital. Uh, he was symbolized, he was known by the symbol of a serpent that wound around a rod. And so people knew him as the healer, but normally they simply called Asclepius the savior. That was what they called him. And they would go on their pilgrimages to Pergamum. They would bring their sick and they would bring their offering and they would go to visit the doctors and the priests of Asclepius in the hopes that they would be made well and they would devote their entire lives to this, this supposed God who had saved them. There in Pergamum, there were many other temples to many other gods, but perhaps the most significant of all of them was the temple that was erected to Rome. In fact, it's, it's very significant that Pergamum was the first city in the ancient world outside of Rome that was given permission to build a temple for the worship of a living emperor. Sometimes the emperors would die and they would be uh, venerated in lots of different places, but while Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was still living, Pergamum wrote to Rome and said, let us build a temple so that we can venerate and worship Augustus now while he's still the living God among us. This is really uh, sort of the, uh, the beginning of Rome's imperial cult. Pergamum is where Caesar worship began, and it became, in a sense, the de facto capital of the imperial cult throughout the Mediterranean world. And so when Jesus says that his people dwell where Satan reigns, we have a pretty good idea of what he has in mind. It's maybe not speaking of just any one of those things, but rather the fact that God's people were there, surrounded by everything that exalts itself against the glory of Christ. There was almost no aspect of life in Pergamum that was free from the stain of satanic idolatry. It might make you think of the way that Boromir uh, described Mordor in the Fellowship of the Ring. He said, there is an evil there that does not sleep. The great eye is ever watchful. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, and I know the danger, and I know the opposition, but despite all that, I also know that you stand firm. This was the claim of Pergamum. That despite where they were, and despite the enormous pressure from the pagan society surrounding them, their faithfulness had been tried and tested and proven. They stood firm. They did not deny him. They did not uh, go away from Christ's name, and they did not turn back from the faith, even when death and persecution was coming among them. Two weeks ago, we looked at Christ's words to Smyrna, and there he was preparing them because uh, persecution was just beginning to rise on the horizon. But here in Pergamum, the sun of persecution is already at high noon. The sword has already come, and Christ has already had a faithful witness. Antipas was killed there where Satan dwells, it says. Now, we don't, we don't know a whole lot about Antipas. There are some suggestions, there are some stories from uh, Christian history, the kind of thing that would 
keep you up late at night if we talked about the horrific way that Antipas was potentially killed. But all we really know about Antipas is what it tells us here. And it's not something insignificant. It says, Antipas is my faithful witness. Now, the word witness there, you may know that word. That actually is martyr. That's where we get our word martyr. The Greek is martus. Now, it's significant not just because of the way that Antipas uh, was a witness for Christ, but the way that he was united to Christ in his witness. Take a look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. John is giving greetings to the church, and he says, Grace and peace to you, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. What's so significant about those that hold fast to him? Well, they're united to Christ. Christ is the faithful witness, and yet he looks upon uh, his servants, and he says, I know where you dwell, and yet I know that you're mine. In fact, I'll call you by my name and my title. Antipas was my faithful witness because he did not turn back. He became like Stephen, a martyr for faith in Christ. And even as he was killed, even as the threat of death was gripping the church in that city, they were standing unmoved upon the name of Jesus. And here's the word of comfort for the church in Pergamum, the comfort that we have today. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, and I know what you face, and I know how you stand firm. And none of your faithfulness has escaped my notice. I once knew a young Christian woman who was a Christian of character, and her heart was grieved. Because in the the school that she attended, she didn't have a single Christian friend, not one. She had the kind of faith that didn't keep itself well hidden. And so, of course, she would go to school and she ended up as, as the butt of ridicule and jokes. And she spoke to me and she told me of how hard it was to stand firm in that atmosphere, breathing in every day the air of skepticism and unbelief. Sunday was like an oasis where she could come to church and be with her friends, and then the rest of the week was a wasteland, and she told me there seemed to be nobody else, at least nobody at school, who could point her to Christ, who could speak encouragement to her. And she felt alone, and she felt exhausted. And there are other Christians that feel that same way. You're the only believer at your job. You're the only Christian that you know of, at least, in your neighborhood or your family. You're the only Christian in your marriage. You feel alone. And you feel exhausted. And it's difficult. It feels like you're constantly being sent into hostile territory, and you're always defending yourself. Well, what would Jesus, our great defender, say to us? If that's you, and if you feel that way, how would he respond? I think he would say, I know where you dwell. I know the struggle. And I know your faithfulness. That's what I want from you. That's what I'm working in you. And so don't worry about defending yourself. Simply be my witness. Simply hold fast to me. That's his word of comfort today. And then there is a word of caution. Jesus spoke a word of comfort that he knows the conflicts that we face. And he speaks also a word of caution that he knows the compromises we make. Take a look at verse 14. He says, A few things that I have against you, you have some there who hold to the teaching 
of Balaam. Now, it's interesting to note uh, that what was facing the church in Pergamum is almost directly the opposite of what was facing the church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they did not tolerate any false teaching. Their doctrine was watertight, and yet the ship in Ephesus was sinking because they had lost their first love for Jesus. Well, turn that on its head, and you have Pergamum, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ enough to be faithful witnesses for him, to cling to him even in the midst of death and the threat of persecution, and and yet they tolerate heresy. It's almost exactly the opposite. In fact, the same false teachers that are named in Ephesus are the false teachers that are named in Pergamum. They are the Nicolaitans. As I said several weeks ago, the truth is we don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans, except for what we find in these verses. They don't show up anywhere else in the scriptures, and there are scant references from church history, but we do know that Jesus compares them to Balaam, this false teacher that we know an awful lot about, actually. Now, Balaam was not actually the name of the teacher there, and there wasn't anyone going around in Pergamum saying that they were giving the teaching of Balaam, but Balaam is an illustration He's saying, look, this is, this is what's going on. It's just like Balaam, and he equates those two. In fact, the language is even the same. Take a look. Verse 14, he says, you have, uh, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so the, the problem is this false teaching. Perhaps you remember the story of Balaam. If you need uh, a reminder, you can go home later today. You can find it in Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. And then there's a little bit of commentary at the end in chapter 31. But, but Balaam was a charlatan. He was a prophet for hire. And the king of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam to come as the Israelites were going past his territory and about to enter into the promised land. And, and Balak called upon Balaam and he said, I know that you have some sort of spiritual insight and what I need is a curse upon these people because they're too large, they're too numerous for us to deal with. And so Balaam, come and, and curse these people. In fact, if you could curse them in the name of their God, that would be even better. That would be sort of a a double whammy upon these people that we can't deal with. So come and and curse them. And when you come and curse them, we will give you so much wealth you can't even imagine it. You will be rich beyond belief. You will be set for the rest of your days. Simply come and and curse them. And so he does. At least he starts to. You remember the story of Balaam, and he stopped when the Lord opens the mouth of his donkey. And the Lord gets his attention and tells him, You may go, but you may only speak the words that I put into your mouth. You may not curse those whom I have blessed. And much uh, to the disappointment of Balak, that's what Balaam did. He set up shop on the high places where he could see Israel sprawled out across the land in front of him. And he asked them to erect altars and to offer sacrifices, seven bulls, seven rams on these altars in the high places. And then he stood Uh, to proclaim a message, and he opened his mouth, and out came blessing instead of cursing. Wonderful blessing, amazing promises. He spoke of the Messiah, the star that would rise from Jacob's line, these wonderful promises from the mouth of this charlatan, and he found that he was unable to curse the ones the Lord had blessed. He was unable to defeat those whom the Lord was defending. And so he took another tactic a different approach. If Balaam could not harm Israel, he would lead Israel to harm themselves. And so he advised the king of Moab, you know, what you need 
is a few good women to do your dirty work for you. In fact, pick all of the most beautiful women in Moab, the young ones, the, the beautiful, attractive ones, and send them into the camp and, and have them entice the Israelites and have them invite them to a dinner party, the best kind of dinner party, the kind of dinner party that the pagans have all the time where the wine is flowing and the sex is free and it all takes place under the dead and empty eyes of the Moabite gods and their idols. Entice them through immorality to idolatry and put those two together and they won't notice what's happening to them until it's too late. And it worked. And Balaam's tactic worked. He laid the traps of immorality and idolatry and he cursed Israel from the inside out. It says in Numbers chapter 25, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and God sent a plague, a plague that destroyed 24,000 Israelites. How can God do that? Isn't he the defender of his people? Why is he coming against his children? Why not come against uh, the Moabites? Why not come against Balaam? And he does later. But he's got to deal with the problem in-house first because the Lord is the defender of his people, but he is so zealous to defend his people that he will defend them even against the enemies that come from within. The Lord will not tolerate idolatrous compromise in his church. And the dangerous thing about Balaam was that he knew that. And the dangerous thing for us is how soon we forget it. The Lord will defend his people from compromise. Now, we don't know exactly how it happened in Pergamum these Nicolaitans, and, and uh, they were certainly doing something like Balaam. They were certainly teaching some false doctrines and leading them away. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we can probably guess the pattern. It's almost exactly what we saw in 1 Corinthians a number of uh, months ago, probably about a year ago now, when we were reading there about uh, the immorality and the idolatry and the way that in pagan culture those two were just intertwined and mixed at every step. And so maybe it began with the idolatry. I mean, if you were in Pergamum, you knew how it was. If you wanted to get into the right trade guild or if you wanted to have a position in society, if you wanted to be able to get ahead or do anything almost, it required, you know, just a little bit of token devotion to the old gods. You don't have to do much, really. You have to show up at the right place. You have to say the right things. You just have to stand when everybody stands and kneel when everybody kneels. And you don't, have to, you don't have to venerate them in your heart. You just raise your glass. You just eat the meat and drink the wine and sit there next to the idols. And it's not a big deal. And, and you'd never dream of denying Jesus, but maybe Jesus wouldn't mind if you just added to him a little bit. And pretty soon the creed in Pergamum becomes, Christ is Lord. But you know, Asclepius, he's okay too. And so maybe it began with the idolatry, or maybe it began as it, as it did under Balaam, as it happened in Corinth. Maybe it began with the immorality. They began to convince themselves, you know, I can, I can follow Jesus and I can freely indulge. But you know, we're not talking about an occasional struggle. Believers will all sin, but it's this teaching that says you don't need to worry about these compromises over here. I can follow Jesus and I can freely indulge in this desire over here and ne'er the twain shall meet. Because after all, isn't God a God of love? He is full of love. 
And what could be more loving than accepting me as I am? That's what makes me feel most loved. If someone doesn't take offense at anything I do or want or think, because that would be unloving if you were intolerant of the things I desired for myself. And so clearly God must be like this, right? And this is the false teaching that is, that is creeping its way through the American church like poison ivy. And it's wrapping its tendrils around the hearts and the minds of our young people. And once the itch begins, we convince ourselves it's not too big of a deal just to scratch a little bit. It would feel so good to scratch that itch and nobody will care because God doesn't mind what I do with my body. He only wants my soul. And it's different, isn't it? And, and I can do these things and I can go to those places and I can indulge just a little, just compromise a little. It's amazing, because no matter where it starts, how often idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. The way that one leads to the other, vice versa. That's the insight from Romans chapter 1. It tells us that all immorality actually is a subset of idolatry. That it actually begins when we suppress the truth of who God is and His lordship over us, and we exchange the worship of the Creator for the creature. And before too long, we indulge in that kind of idolatry and we're given over. Our, our bodies and our minds are given over. Our bodies are given up to indulge in, in all manner of wickedness and lusts and degrading passions. And it all starts maybe with a little compromise, but it grows and it mushrooms. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to look at those churches out there. You know who I'm talking about, right? We sit in here as well. I'm glad that we don't have any teaching like that. We would never tolerate teaching in our pulpit or in our church that says that immorality or homosexuality or adultery or fornication or, or any number of other immoral acts, we would never tolerate any teaching that says that that is okay. And yet I will go home and I will turn on Netflix and I will watch these programs that celebrate all of it as though I can somehow divorce those two in my mind in my life. Friends, this is not far away from us. This is in our hearts and in our mouths. This sort of compromise shows up in the books that we read and the websites that we visit and the fantasies that we indulge and the tiny little jokes that we tell because it's funny when everybody else is laughing and we want to laugh along with everyone else too. And it's just a little compromise. And it grows. And Balaam knew that. And Screwtape knew that, actually. My dear Wormwood, doubtless you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness, but do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope. Soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Balaam knew it. Screwtape knew it. And we tend to forget it. And so the Lord speaks a word of caution. Repent, he says. Turn back. Do not listen to the whisper that says that you can divorce these things, that God only wants 
your soul and not your mind and not your will and not your affections and not your body. Do not listen to the teaching that says that a man or a woman can take fire into his lap and not be burned. Jesus is our defender. He's calling us today to be cautious. To see compromise the way that he sees compromise and to turn back from tolerating evil in our lives and maybe even in our own churches. So the Lord speaks a word of comfort. And the Lord speaks a word of caution. And finally, there's this word of commitment. Again, at the end, Jesus, as we've seen already twice, Jesus calls us to give ear. Again, Jesus promises to give gifts and graces to those who by faith are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. And again, as in the other letters, the gifts that Jesus promises to his people are perfectly suited to the struggles that they're facing in this particular place in Pergamum. Remember the problems, the two problems we've identified in Pergamum. One was that they dwelled where Satan reigned, that they breathed his air and they lived in his influence. They drank of the bitterness of his persecution. The second problem was that not where they dwelled, but who was dwelling among them. The second problem in Pergamum were the false teachers residing in the church to which they did not belong. Take note in verse Uh, 16, the way the Lord separates the true church and the false teachers. Notice what he says. Repent. If not, I will come to you, and I will wage war against them. The Lord is never against his people. But he is against all those things and all those compromises and all those false teachers and the lies that we believe. And he says, I will come to you, and I will wage war against them. So there are false professors. There are False brethren, even within the church, and the Lord says, I will come, and I will war against them. So the problem was that the church in Pergamum lived in a dangerous place, and they harbored dangerous teachers. But the Lord promises that he will take his people, and he will welcome them to where he dwells. But they will be separated from all that is unclean. They will be secure, and they will find provision in his presence. That's a combination, really, of of these images that we find in this last verse. The Lord promises first, he says, to those who conquer by faith, to those who conquer, I will give some of the hidden manna. Manna, of course, is uh, the food that the Lord gave to his people through their wilderness wanderings, the way that he sustained them as they, they waited upon him in faith. And at the very beginning, in Exodus chapter 16, when the manna began to fall, the Lord commanded that Moses should take an omer of manna, he should gather it together, and he should keep it separate, and it would last. It would not rot like the rest of it. It would stay preserved, and it should be kept before the Lord as a memorial forever. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that manna was placed actually in a golden container, and it was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. It was there with the, the tablets of the law and Aaron's staff that budded, and we can't speak of these things in detail now, but it was there. It was there in in the midst, uh, underneath the mercy seat where God would meet with his people, but where even the priest did not have access to it inside the ark. You see what he's saying here. To those who conquer, I will bring you close to where I am. I will open the hidden stores of manna. I will bring you near. You will no longer live under the shadow of the throne of Satan, but you will come near to the mercy seat where I have provision for you, where I will feed you, where I will call you my own. 
and you will feast upon the faithfulness of the Lord, and Jesus will provide for those that he has defended and saved to himself. And then he says, to those who conquer, I will give them a white stone with a new name. This one's a little more ambiguous than the first promise, simply because white stones were used for lots of different things in the ancient world. They were sometimes little uh, polished pieces of white marble, uh, were sometimes given to champions in athletic events. They would receive a laurel wreath that, that would fade and, and would, uh, would be left somewhere, but they would also receive a, a piece of white marble that was polished to a sheen and perhaps put in a, a pouch they would carry with them everywhere as proof of their conquest. White stones were also used uh, sometimes as token of entry into banquets. If you were uh, the host of a, a large estate, you would invite all of your people to a banquet and you would send out white uh, chips of marble to them, and that was proof that they had been invited, that they were able to come near, and they were, they were your guests, and they would feast with, with you. But the other one, and I think, although the others seem plausible, it's really the last image uh, that fits the passage best, in the courts at that time, in courts that were, uh, that were decided with jurors, they would decide guilt or innocence by putting either a black or a white stone into a basket. And that was the way they cast their vote. I think this is what the Lord is saying to his people, because here are his children living in Pergamum. And the governors and the proconsuls and the magistrates are already casting their votes against them. And they're already saying, you are guilty because you belong to Christ, the Nazarene. And Jesus says, no, I cast my verdict in your favor. You are innocent because you are mine, and I'll write this name upon it, and that also is a little uh, puzzling. But I think, uh, although it, it doesn't seem all that clear, it's actually one name, not many different names, not uh, given to each person a different name. Some theologies will, will teach you that, that each person gets their own specific name, but no, I think this is, this is the name of Christ. It says, uh, in uh, Rome, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, uh, Christ shows up again with the sword of judgment. Yet it says that upon his crown is a name that only he knows. But later it tells us that his name is, is righteous and just. So it's not a, a word, it's not a name that is utterly unknown, but experientially unknown. He says, I will give this white stone of innocence to my people and I will write a name upon it and only those who are mine will know what it is. And just as the priest in the Old Testament would enter in and would approach that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and he would wear an ephod, a robe, and, and in that robe would be two stones with the names of Israel engraved upon them. Christ says, I will give you the testimony of your innocence from me, and my name will be upon it. And that will mean that you can come, and you can eat, and you can feast with me. This is the perfect place for us to end today. Because we began by seeing the Lord who is the one who defends his people, the Lord who is zealous uh, to keep his bride and to defend his bride so that she would be presented to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. And we end with this promise of a banquet, the feast on the hidden manna, to come in a righteousness and a purity and a name not our own, but to be called as, as Christ and drawn near and separated from all that is false. 
And as we come today to the table, we will come to eat and drink as a foretaste of that great wedding banquet that we will all partake of. For those who are his, for those who conquer by faith, we will all partake of in the day when Christ is revealed and his bride is presented and the day that will have no end and the feast and the banquet that will never run out. We come today as a foretaste. We come because the Lord is our defender who keeps us, who sustains us, who grants us his name and his purity, who separates us, who does not take compromise lightly, but instead has laid down his life so that we who compromise so much in our lives should be made perfect and righteous in his sight. So brothers and sisters, let's come together. Let's eat and drink and long for the day that we will see Christ our defender. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, gracious King, Majestic Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our conquering King, Jesus Christ, the perfect husband of the bride, his church, Jesus Christ, our defender. Oh Lord, we pray that you would keep us from spiritual compromise. We pray that you would keep us from believing the lie that says that we can follow you and not care about our sin and not deal with our sin and have no thought to it. But help us to hear that word that says that you are the one who conquers. That you have conquered the grave and death and hell. You call your people by a new name. You draw them to yourself. You feed them with the stores of your mercy. And you sustain us by your spirit and by your word and by your power. So keep us, we pray, and meet us at your table, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the conquering power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We come.